this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Wait, you can hold your breath for a minute? He used to be able to, I for used sure. to be. I was like in my teens. Oh, okay. I had much stronger lungs back then. I wow. think I only ever made it to like 30 <laughs> seconds underwater before yeah, I was I like, I'm panicking. Right? I think, yeah. Um, okay, let's start. So this is uh, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Built-in microwave. Semicolon. Problems of design. Problems of design. Challenges. Challenges of design. Problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I like we'll, to think of them as challenges. I, yeah, okay. something to be overcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Philosophers always phrase things as problems. As problems, yeah. The problem. I think, and the argument from. I mean, let's just get in this into the semantics right away. Like yeah. that's the important thing: is have a semantic <laughs> argument before we even get onto the actual discussion of what we're getting at. Um, all right, what do we? Okay, so. We've just got some arbitrarily chosen chosen uh, talking points. Talking points. Um, so, one of the problems of design is a lack challenges. of yeah challenges. Um, uh, lack of specificity. So, uh, well, okay. Before we get there, um, you know, welcome to Feature Creep. We've right. got Meg here and myself, Ned, and our guest slash possibly. Future co-host. It seems like he's been on more podcasts than not. Right, uh, Chris. Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> look out! You're tipping. Right. Yeah. What have you gotten yourself into? Um. Yeah. I, Happy I don't to be know. Here. Right. I mean, I, you know, if you're listening to this, I, you know, we appreciate you listening to this, and hopefully, it it brings you some some pleasure and and you find it interesting. So, um. Anyway, so the three of us we're going to talk about um the problems or the challenges of design. And we're going to look at, first of all, we're going to look at something called the lack of specificity. And, uh, okay. I got, oh, you I, have to answer that. Uh, really? <laughs> you answer it. No, she called you. She didn't call me. I can't answer it right now. I mean, now it's all fucked up. Everything's We're clearly going to have to edit this now. Okay. <laughs> I'm not answering it right now. I'm on the, I'm, we're doing a podcast. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll talk to her later. She texted, she didn't, she talked about talking, calling last night, not tonight. Okay. You gotta, yeah. All right. All right. Just trying to hold you accountable Ugh. to other people, man. Okay. It's totally not my job. Um, okay. So, uh, we're talking about the challenges, the challenges of design, design, um, a lack of specificity and here you know, so one of the biggest problems or one of a, a problem of, of design is lack of specificity. I run into that at all levels. Um, when I'm doing software development, that's always a, a major problem is just being like, you know, specific, getting, getting customers to, or clients to be really specific about the, what they want. Yeah. Um, oftentimes the biggest hurdle that I have with clients is walking them through, processes that help them develop the specificity they need to to define what they're trying to get developed and what they're actually what they want out of the software out of the product that i'm creating for them um so um 
Yeah. You know, I mean, Chris, you've, you've certainly probably. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where I see most of the, most of that, the issues of that come up is from the client, you know, I mean, like trying to get them to be specific about what their need is and what their, um, their uh, problem or challenge is. Um, And lots of times they don't even know, they don't even know how to frame their own problem. And you have to, as the designer, you have to kind of hear what they're saying and almost come up with it on your own and sort of give it back to them and be like, well, here's what your problem really is. Yeah. You know? Um, But that is, I think that is a challenge that a designer often faces is how do you frame your client's own problem in a way that you can then address it and try to mm-hmm. try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Do you think so? Do you think that defining the problem is like a major component of the work that you do up front or in general? Yeah. yeah, I think it's number one. Yeah, I think before we even do anything, it's define what that problem is, and then we can decide how to address it to, mm-hmm. or you know design for it. Mm-hmm. That makes um, a lot of sense. I've done. I mean, I don't work as a designer, but a number of jobs or projects that I've worked on ended up being about the design of something. And it, I ran into the same problem that you have where it's like, I don't think you guys understand your own problem. Mm-hmm. Like before you can solve it, you have to actually figure out what it is you're trying to fix. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't always it. Like it, even in some cases, like the, the most um, simple metaphor that I can think of is it, I get called in like on a, a on a job on an assignment or something to work on a project and they're like okay well like here's this pile of stuff and we're not really sure what it is and i'm like okay well it looks to me like what you have here is a car but the car only has three wheels on it and it needs four to go and people are like oh yeah that fourth (laughs) wheel and it's like that's really obvious and reductive but sometimes it's been something that obvious like Right. Well, you didn't even know what you had w- to start with, much less that it was missing something. Um, right. And so, like, I think that kind of falls under the category of defining the problem. Like, well, the problem is you have a car and it's only got three out of the four things it needs to drive down the road. So we just got to get that fourth thing on there and then you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it comes up so so often with projects. You know, someone, a client will come to you and say, oh, uh, can you make me a website? It's like, well, sure. But... <laughs> why do you need a website and what do you well, you know what do you want the website to do and it's like oh i don't know i just want a website it's like well okay yeah. but that's a, that's a really common um you know i get a lot of like a lot of clients will say well they'll ask me if i can also do like a web app as a companion to whatever product they're mm. you know whatever they're doing and and i yes absolutely will you pay me money for that great i'll i'll burn through all your money no problem right but yeah, sure. but really i mean that's not really who i am i mean usually the first question i ask is like yeah that sounds great like what what were you looking to do with that well you know everybody has a web app now and i'm like okay or like a you know an an app for their phone or something you know mm-hmm. i need this companion app on on you know so that the clients can have it cuz that's what everyone else has and i oftentimes um I'm not looking to people to talk t- talk them out of that because sometimes there's marketing reasons for this that regardless of whether I agree with them, they, they're not wrong. It's like you need to have a web presence and you need to have a presence mm-hmm. in the app community and you need to have this. And um, and so, but at least they need to understand that. Yes. At least it needs to be understood that, or understood that 
you know, what you're asking for is something that's actually not really doing people a service, but it is because you want to be competitive, even though your product or whatever your actual business does, doesn't really lend itself to having a phone app of any kind. Um, if you have a cupcake business, you probably don't need a phone app. Yeah. I mean, you know, or <laughs> it's not a priority. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's like we can reach, reach some middle ground where it's like, oh, well, what you really mean is you want to be in, you, you want to make sure that your company is accessible to the apps that service your industry. Like, um, you know, something like a food delivery service, like to stick with a cup, cupcake scenario, right? Yeah. You know, if you run a cupcake business, it's like, okay. Well, really what you mean is you want people to use an app to order your cupcakes. Right. Let's help you get onto the apps that already do that kind of thing versus making your own to kind of populate. But again, um, you know, sometimes they're just like, well, we really, you know, want to have that. And it's like, that's fine. But again, specificity, like being specific about why you want that is the important thing here and being clear about them understand, like the client and myself understanding as a communication between each other, what their expectations are and what they're hoping to achieve with yeah. this particular project or this design mm-hmm. endeavor. Um, I actually was also thinking about in a different capacity, rather than thinking about design from a point of view of like the kind of traditional designer and client sort of interface or, or any kind of like endeavor in that regard, just a sense of um, as myself, when I'm doing, when I'm, when I'm having to think about the design of something, Mm-hmm. we've already solved the problem of like, in, you know, so in software, it's like, okay, I got really clear, specific requirements from the client. That's great. Now I need to think about, you know, it falls on me to be a little bit creative about what does the interface look like? What, you know, what are the things specificity is also important in that regard and me being really specific about, um, and deliberate with the, the interactions that users are having, like the user interactions, like the user interface being really specific about um, the data transforms that are happening in the background. Everything needs to be very specific and deliberate. It doesn't, it's not useful to be hand wavy in software development. I can't be like, hey, like if you push this button, well, what happens? Well, just things happen, you know, create yeah. fun things. It's like, no, like the, the, the user experience needs to be that they click that button. They know exactly what's going to happen. The outcome is going to be very consistent. It's going to be very clear and it's going to be very specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if that specificity is like, hey, this is the wild card button. When you hit this, who knows what's going to happen? Right. I mean, that, but it's that speci- is itself very you know, specific. Yeah, it's very right. specific, right? right? So, um, yeah, I, I, anyway, um, I think, uh, I think specificity is, is obviously, you know, something that's important when you're, when you're thinking about design and when you're trying to design a product, like be, be specific and deliberate about those elements that you're adding mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. And I think it's something that comes <clears throat> from, um, experience too. Like when you're, I'll speak from my own experience. When I was a young designer, just coming out of college and right. going into the design field, like I was not specific about anything. I was like, "Yeah, let's just make it look cool." I don't know. Uh, you know, I learned all these cool tricks and uh-huh. uh, right. was like excited to have a job and like making stuff. And I was like, "I'll just make it look cool." I don't know why. Um, but then, as you get more in experience and you kind of understand what you're doing, you kind of get a sense of like start to question like why am i doing this or right this, right what, what am i making this for or, mm-hmm. you know does this need this uh button that does random things or can it just not uh, right there right you know like well everyone has those buttons so i'm gonna put them too even right. though they don't yeah. I, I think car design often suffers from that where it's like we're uh. gonna add these events or we're gonna add these like this trim and it's like 
that came from a particular car that used that for a specific thing. And then that became the trend. And now all cars have a hood scoop, even though it's completely plugged up and does nothing absolutely whatsoever. Right. Except wreck your front end aerodynamics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's just kind of like, okay, but that's the look. And so, and you know, you can go back and <clears> forth and argue. I mean, I think we'll get to a point where we're probably talking about, you know, I mean, that's more of a matter of form over function, mm-hmm. right? It's like, well, it looks that way. And that does serve a certain kind of purpose for, you know, for different people. It sells cars to people who want the look of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not really passing judgment. If like you're driving around in a car and it's like, I chose that car because of a non-functional hood scoop. It's fine. You want to look that way. We can use like, like logical absurdity to describe this. A Bugatti Veyron Uh looks fucking cool yes and it's also designed with aerodynamics in mind because it exceeds 200 miles an hour right yes a ford taurus yes is probably best suited for the side of an exit ramp right <laughs> i mean like it's not aerodynamic sure it's not expensive right it doesn't look cool you're right it's a ford taurus it's, it's a, ford, a very functional it, car it's, it's like, just getting your crap around town car yeah, and right, it right. you know does that for some miles before it shits out on the side of an exit ramp sure but like the point is if it's good a ford taurus is like it's good enough right and a bugatti veyron is like this is the best we can possibly come up with uh-huh yeah yeah although i might argue that probably a, a bugatti would also shit the bed on the side of an on-ramp because i'm pretty sure it's not designed for um it's when they designed that car they weren't like okay when this thing reaches 400,000 miles, it better still be on the road. Well, they have that in right. common with the Taurus then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, it, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to find out. I mean, you know, in, in 20 years are the, you know, what are those going to be as classic cars? Are they still going to be, I mean, no one's buying one of those cars to do like those cars aren't ever going to be <laughs> to drive it to Ralph's. They're not being maintained right. in like, like country, like even in Hawaii, where it's it's just hard to get a car, so cars last longer. People maintain them on the roads longer because you're not gonna just buy a brand new car if you don't have to. There's not just this endless supply of like new cars. It's hard to get one in Hawaii, relatively. Yes, I haven't lived there in a long time, so I don't know. But when I was there, like I, my very first car was a, um, it was a Dodge Colt station wagon a 1978 dodge cult station wagon in like rust orange i mean it was probably more (laughs) orange but at the time i had it 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 was was probably also called like harvest gold or something back then oh it was a beautiful car it had the um it had the like the brown uh um what are those faux leather but at the time it was like vinyl yeah vinyl with the pinholes in it yes um it was it was such a ridiculously fun car to drive like it wasn't fun car to drive it was fun car to own as like a 17 year old who like this is my first freedom right it was like like, i've dropped out of high school and now i have a car (laughs) this is amazing and i'm in hawaii clearly things are going right yeah like why Um, does everybody bother doing all that extra shit right exactly like i don't know (laughs) why would you stay in school when you could just do this um you know and it it had its problems uh lots of them we won't get into that but my point being is that the car, you know, that car kept on the road well past its life expiration point because I like when I sold it and I'd come back to visit, I saw it. You saw your car driving like, around <laughs> 10 years later. Oh. It was still driving around because and I knew it was the one because why like would Cuba. Yeah. Why would someone send out a 1978 
Dodge Colt station wagon to Hawaii. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I saw it and it was all cherried out. Okay. Someone like really wanted this car. It was just, it was clearly the same one. Um, and yeah. so my point being yeah. is that <laughs> I'll be interested to see like these, like, like a, a Veyron, like in 20 or 30 years, like they're never, those cars are never going to be in the status of like that level, right? Where they're just being maintained because someone needs to get from point A to point B. Right. It's just right. not practical. It's, it's right. designed for one thing. It's designed to go 200 plus miles an hour. Yeah. I'm sure a tire yeah. is like well over a thousand dollars or something. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's gotta it's be just, just insanely expensive. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so specificity, Whatever, yeah. obviously, which we've all already veered away from. Right. Um, yeah. Well, this is feature creep, so. <laughs> right. Welcome to feature creep. Kind of our thing. Right. Um, so besides specificity, we've also got, um, like the, one of the fundamental requirements of design or fundamental challenges of design being a quick turnaround. Oh, yeah, like as a challenge. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, mm. you know, fighting the clock is always an issue. Well, yeah, especially when you're dealing with a client who's uh, paying you a certain amount and you've got a certain goal and a certain budget. And I guess you, you know, got to go through it as quick as you can. I mean, that's pretty obvious, pretty obvious one. Right. Um, but what if you're designing for something that has a a consideration that isn't simply a desire to market something quicker. Like for instance, um, we know some people like through other people, you don't know that we know this, but I know that we know these people um, who were instrumental in helping set up communication systems on Haiti after the earthquake. Okay. And um, like Red Cross was down there kind of screwing the pooch and like nobody could get the shit together. And so some of the people we know waited until they felt that it was appropriate to show up and be like, this is how you set up a network like this. And they basically did it in like a day turnaround and had the whole island wired and communicating. Uh-huh. Right. So they knew who had what supplies and this group over here knew how many patients they had and they could right. actually begin to like systematize how they were dealing with the the fallout from the earthquake as opposed to just a bunch of shit. Nobody, none of the wires connecting to any of the other wires. Right. And so if you're designing for something like a natural disaster, then you would have a time constraint that is more of a moral uh, constraint. Yeah. It's not just a matter of saving. It's not just saving time or energy or money. It's like people's lives are on the line and this is, you know, people's well-being are are directly affected by your your ability to meet this this design challenge immediately or as quickly as possible. Um, Yeah. I mean, time is, I, I think this actually is a, it's an issue because in design, there's a there's a huge heavy point of creativity, and so I the challenge I find in this is that um, you have to you know when you're when you're kind of like it's really kind of like well how do you put a timeline on creativity mm-hmm. how do you bound that and say okay well you only get to be creative for this much time and then it's time to like go to work um mm-hmm. or try to implement right um oftentimes i i imagine most people work in a balance of like they're being creative while they're working like as they create they're they're implementing it's not just like you're sitting there imagining 
you're not envisioning something. And then later after spending an hour or two sitting in your fancy chair or whatever, wherever you are doing your creative thinking, then you get up and go over and walk over to the computer or you walk to the, you know, the piece of paper and then you, you implement, um, you're doing it in, in iterations, right? You're like, you know, you have something that you use to prototype and, and express mm-hmm. your envision, your vision, and then you're creating it and you're putting yeah. it out there and you're kind of doing that. Um, and that, so, so oftentimes I think this kind of happens organically where you're, you just do that process for as long as you're allotted and you're refining right. and refining and refining and whatever end point that is, is, is the end point. Whenever you run out of money or whenever the, uh, yeah. the client says, uh, yeah, deadline's up. Yeah, deadline's <laughs> up. And so you yeah. kind of, um, and you might, you know, I like from a personal business practice, like you, you kind of want to put those constraints on yourself because oftentimes the client doesn't know how to bound that. You need to know what's exp- like, you right. need to be able to, as like an individual representative of yourself, like you need to know how to like bound that for yourself. But that's more of a personal issue, just as a problem of design in general. The question becomes how like how do you bound create the creative side? It's perfectly simple to bound a process that is a known, you know, if you're laying a certain amount of um pavement down and you know already the requirement like, you know, you know how thick the pavement's gonna be and you know the formulation of it and you know where it's gonna be supplied from, and now it's just a matter of like you know that there's a particular rate of pavement you can lay down. You can lay a road between here, point A and point B, assuming you already know the train and a lot of other factors. But, um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not trivializing that. I'm just saying that it is something that you can, you can sort of calculate for, but it's much Mm -hmm. harder to calculate for, um, a creative solution. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how long does it take to come up with the FedEx logo? Right. It it could be uh it could be hours or it could be seconds. Right. You know? Right. And, and so that part is I think um I think that's I, like when I think of this as being a challenge of design, I think it's one of those problems that's that's really hard to bound and think about and really get your hands on because um I mean how do you how do you bound that creativity that's an essential part an essential part of it? A lot of it is about, like for my own personal practice, it's always about like being okay with good enough, recognizing good enough and being like, okay, that works and meets the client's requirements. And Mm -hmm. it's not that I don't miss, I like I don't then do write that software and then represent it to the client as like, this is the most amazing software that's ever been created. Oftentimes it's like, if I can, like oftentimes I'll say, okay, this meets your requirements, (laughs) but I do understand there's room for more work here. Like there's more design that needs to happen here, but oftentimes it's like, it's good enough. What do you want to do? It's up to them. It's their time and money, right? Like I've spent my time and money and, you know, and they're, you know, mm-hmm. also weighing in on it. Um, I don't know. I, it's a, it's a problem, right? Like I don't even know necessarily how I, to fully yeah, express you, like why, like, I was going to say that I find that I'm different types of creative under different types of time constraints. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, right. I've worked with you for a while now. Like it's definitely you, you have sometimes time constraints are an amazing part of creativity. Yeah. Right. You're like you don't have time to think about this. You need to just express your like gut reaction to this. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes the, that's the right answer. That's the right. Right. The project uh, that we did the illustrations for. Yeah. Um, the, the faster I 
did some of those illustrations, the better they came out. Because right. the second I started to slow down, I would overthink some of the elements and then the the stylistic sort of appearance of it would suffer. Yeah. And so like the I put a time constraint on myself of like if you go more than a couple of seconds over before you're like already writing something out on here we've gone too long right right and i even crumpled up a couple of them through them because i'm like i'm spending too much time on this one yeah like it's it's like the actual style of this illustration is suffering because right there's too much detail here yeah right i think it depends on the project too i mean there are times when you need to have that sort of gut reaction and whatever Mm. you come up with is the right thing but i think there are other projects where you need to sort of you know hash it out and put something down and then walk away, come back to it, think about it again. Um, maybe those are more like a systematic kind of projects. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that I work on, like um, there's the, the really like fast paced creative part of the, the work. And mm-hmm. then there's the more systematic um, trying to figure out the detail of how it's going to work. And then you have to sort of like try something and then walk away and come back to it. And it takes a lot of time and, um, you sort of have to, I don't know, account for that, mm-hmm. um, or I don't know, expect that. Uh, sure, like a budgeting, like, like give yourself yeah. space to do that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, but that's, I mean, yeah, it's always hard to, like, where, how how do you draw that line, or how do you tell, right, right, what it's going to take? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the way we've kind of worded it. What what was the wording? Uh, the way that I wrote it down was um working with fast turnarounds yeah i mean i think Mm -hmm. that to kind of stick to the specificity of that i think it lends it more to um or like like what you're saying is like you know when you're kind of narrowing in on like you know your day-to-day practice of like you know you're you're you work in a kind of design industry or you work in a capacity where you're spending some amount of time working on design like i agree with you like you want to have um you have to budget that <clears throat> like you have to know yourself and know mm-hmm. how you work and then also know the problem. Like you were saying, Meg, it's like yeah. some problems it's like, yeah, like you want to, the whole value of it was like putting you under pressure and making you draw these as fast as possible. Right. So that they're, they're real loose. They're real like off the cuff. Mm-hmm. They have that feeling to it. Yeah. Um, but like Chris mm-hmm. was saying, it's like, then, then there's the opposite of that where it's like, well, okay, but that wouldn't work if we were say, um, designing like a product that a needed bridge to, a bridge yeah like we're building a bridge <laughs> it's, it's yes. like yeah, no this <laughs> needs to have a couple of iterations and it needs to like think about it and and all of those are factors to think about and i think um you know kind of what we're talking about here is just like you really have to think critically about it and the and it's something that you yeah. draw like as you get more experience is something you draw experience from I on one of the projects that I worked on, yeah. I would implement artificial timelines because I knew if I allowed the actual amount of time that we had to lapse before we came up with an an action to uh-huh. follow it, yeah, it would turn into a steaming pile of blubbery nonsense, <laughs> and it would be incredibly hard to implement. Right, and right. It like so. I what I tell everybody is, well, this is the this is the hard deadline. 
So if you, we need to make the hard deadline, we want to think back from that and have a soft deadline where we feel like we're ready, but there might be last minute changes or something. Mm-hmm. And so, but we got to have it in by this date. And it's like, there's no timeline on this particular item. I just know that this, the nature of the item that needs to be managed, the challenge at hand is one that will spiral out of control if we give it too much thought. Right, right, right. Like, yeah. don't ask the next five people you talk to about what they think about this problem. Or I would also, uh, I think like a flip side of this too is like um, limiting. So another limitation that you can put on creativity is you may know that there are any number of potential solutions to this challenge, but all you're really interested in is presenting people with a couple good ones and making them choose among those. So in Mm -hmm. other words, phrasing the the challenge as... um, what do you think about this solution to this problem versus this solution as opposed to how do you guys think we should solve this problem, which becomes a big <laughs> blubbery mess super quick and someone's crying. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're doing that all the time in, in my work. I mean, we're always, there's always multiple answers to a client's question or problem or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the, the plan is to offer them several what we think are answers and let them decide which one it really doesn't matter which one it is like, yeah, we may have our preference, but, um, but we try to present several ones that will work. Right. Right. You know, maybe one of those, you know, maybe neither of those are like the best answer, but they all are going to work. So, um, yeah. And it's part of of your job as the designer is to not offer your clients a shitty option. Right. Because they're going to pick it. Of course, of course they will. <laughs> oh, that's of course so they true. Will. Yeah, every single time. Every time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think even that can happen. Um, <laughs> don't you know. give them an option you don't actually want to follow right, through exactly. on. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Aww. Well, I, I mean, yeah. The, I, I think Meg to speak to your point. I think that can even happen outside of a group, like even individually. If you mm-hmm. leave yourself too much time to think about a problem, mm-hmm. yes. Sometimes you reached some some like local peak where it was a solution that was good enough. And then you, you know, you're, you're probably not wrong in thinking, Oh, there's a better solution out there, but you go back downhill for a long time and you're down in the Valley somewhere where it's like, well, none of these, not only are these not solutions, but I'm just wasting a lot of time looking at stuff. That's just really bad, um, like direction to go in. And then, and then Mm. you're kind of at some point, at some point you might find like another peak that's like similar height as far as solution, but you're also dissatisfied with it. Mm -hmm. And now you're stuck with that choice for yourself. And you're just like, look at all this time. Look at all this time I've spent. Like I should have just like, as I got to a peak and it's going back down, I should have evaluated the peak for the fitness and be like, Oh, well this design meets the, the basic requirements. Let's call it good enough and move on. Um, and not waste my client's time because again, like, you know, as you start to work in any industry, like as you work with other people, you'll st- start to realize that um, a lot of stuff that you agonized over is just so trivial that it gets thrown on the cutting room floor like weeks after, like even after like, like I've had software projects where they're like, yep, make that software project. And like, we get it all done. I get everything done. I release it. Everything's working. And then two weeks later, they're like, yep, we're, we're closing this. We're not even doing this. <laughs> yeah. We're not even using this thing. Yeah. Oh, I have a right. lot of sympathy to that 
yeah scenario and, and you can't get attached because you have to understand like well i was just like one little piece in their whole scenario of whatever they're doing right. and i you right. know i mean obviously they're all idiots and i'm right and if everybody did what i said then the world would be perfect <laughs> we, but, we wouldn't be in this predicament right we wouldn't be in this predicament yeah exactly yeah um, I, I think another part of that is because uh, only my shit doesn't stink. Right. <laughs> I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I think the other part of that is is uh, to not be afraid also of throwing things on the cutting floor because I I and and I I tell my students this all the time like like draw down your your worst ideas like if you have an idea in your head and you think it's not going to work mm-hmm. uh uh draw it you know like work it out and yeah. prove to yourself that it's not going to work and right. then now you know that that's a bad idea otherwise you don't know it's just sort of in your head is like oh maybe that's not going to work yeah but you got to prove to yourself that it's not going to work and then you're sure and then now you can throw that one aside and move on to something else but the 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 other side of that is to to do that quickly to learn how to like oh yeah like iterate, iterate fail iterate quickly. quickly yeah fail yeah. quickly actually um, that actually really um segues really well into the one about um the one about doing oh doing versus thinking balancing yeah. thinking and doing right yeah, balancing thinking yeah. and doing um right yeah i think that like so one of the other topic you know one of the other points about or kind of challenges of design or, or problems of design um, is balancing thinking versus doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like a perfect example. Like sometimes you need to get on with the doing mm-hmm. a little bit and kind of walk down that path a little bit so you can get some perspective or like you say, it's like you might think it's a terrible idea, but you thought about it a few times. Like by the time you've convinced yourself it's a bad idea, you probably could have sketched it out or, done right. something more to make it more real and see it from a different perspective mm-hmm. and then and then like you say just throw it on the cutting room floor for now and you know it's still there yeah you know and yeah. now it's been made a little bit more real and you can move on and you can let it go and and do some other right. stuff for a little bit and, yeah um, but not get locked up and like trying to decide whether it's going to work or whether it's not going to work like quickly prove to yourself that it's not going to work and then right. you can move on and do right. something else. Yeah. Like slot um, it in and like, does it yeah. work? No. Okay. Well, you right. were totally right. Great. But now we're done with that and we can just definitively know. Right. Right. I think a great impediment to that is when people, um, take like ownership over an idea. And so the idea itself becomes like a, a projection of that person. And so getting rid of that idea is equivalent to, getting rid of that person's contribution or I think this is how I've mm. ha- I experienced people not wanting to like let go of some of the That's ideas that they wanted to include in a project. And it's like, we're not saying anything negative about you. We're just saying that this idea that happened to originate with you isn't going to serve the project as well as something else right. might in this case. But I, I, I've in my personal experience, it's always people don't want to let go of something that they feel is very, says something about them and their contribution to the project and they don't want that to be erased. That's a that's mm-hmm. a hard um group dynamic to get on top of. Mm-hmm. Um it's super important one to get on top of though. Yeah. If you can create a group where no one is real like there's you you always want to give praise for when people do good, but there's not but it's like praising the ideal group I imagine are the ones that I've worked in that have been most successful is when, um, 
when everyone is excited for someone who came up with a good idea mm-hmm. and there and the excitement of it, like we all get to share it. Like I feel good about your good idea and I'm super excited you came up with it. And now we all feel really great. And mm-hmm. no one and no one's punished for bad ideas. Not not like, oh, there's no bad ideas. Okay, everyone right. like there are plenty of bad ideas. <laughs> everyone <laughs> please get your bad ideas out on the on the you <laughs> right. know, on the table because we need to start sorting through them. The revelation of right. a bad idea can also have a net positive result right. for the project, in right. which case like you're contributing something positive. Yeah. Like right. you're and adding so, to the outcome. And that's a that's a tough group dynamic to get over. Um, people, everyone has a different feeling around it. It's really, it, it's way more common. I mean, most of the companies like I've, I've interacted with as a consultant, like that's what I face every day. You yeah. walk into it and it's like, everyone's against me mm-hmm. because I can't, not, not as much, but a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I represent like an outside threat because they're right. trying to you know, this matters to them. It's their career. For me, it's like I might, you know, get a little work here or there, or maybe I'm, you know, here for a couple of weeks. Maybe I'm here for a year. Who knows? But at the end of the day, I'm not climbing any kind of corporate ladder. I'm not, right. I'm not advancing. So, you know, for me, it's not as, it's not as like threatening, mm-hmm. but for a lot of people, it's like, well, I need to look better than you or I need to do this. And, and yeah. I, that's very real. That's the upsetting thing to me. It's like, I oftentimes, like when I, you know, work with other programmers and stuff where they might feel like threatened or they're kind of struggling with it. Like that's very real for them. It's not, yeah. their, that's not their own paranoia or their own feelings. Right. That's true. It's your just boss, not a factor. That- your, your boss is being a shitty boss who's judging you against me and not encouraging an, an environment right. where you're going to learn and grow and be great or any of those things. They're creating an environment where it's like, well, if you don't do better than this guy, we're probably just going to go with this guy. And that sucks right. because, yeah. you know, that's not, that, that's not cooperative. Like ideally you're in a group environment where everybody's like, great, we finally stumbled on the great idea. And we absolutely want to recognize someone for being great and doing that. But it's also not like, that's not your goal. Right. right. The goal of the group, yeah. like, I don't want to be the one who came up with a good idea. I just want to be in the group that had a great, that we all recognized a good idea and then worked on it and made the thing a reality. Yes. Yeah. Cause and, of, yeah. Yeah. And those have been the greatest groups that I've been on, the ones where there is no ownership of the idea. Right. Like all the ideas are thrown out on the table and nobody knows whose is whose and whichever one is picked is picked. But um, I think that's the, the, the greatest dynamic is when you sort of take away ownership of the idea and the ownership becomes the group's ownership. Yeah. Like everybody takes ownership of the right idea mm-hmm. um, and nobody feels like they've lost. Right. Mm-hmm. Um but that, I mean, that is really hard to, to get, because everyone wants to be the the superstar. Everyone wants to be a winner. Everyone wants to right. have, have the great idea. idea. Yeah. Um, so how do you, it's tricky to try to take that away. Um, yeah. And I, you I, have to. I mean, you have you know, to, yeah. You have yeah. to find a way to get, get on top of that if you can, if you're trying mm-hmm. to manage a group or you're just in a group. If you're in a group and you want the group to be successful, like you try to find a way to make that more I've like had mixed that. success doing that. I oh, mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the nature. Not that I wasn't it, trying, it's but sometimes much, it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It's right. a much bigger problem than just, you know, whether or not, um, you know, we're talking about just design stuff. It's just like a, an issue, a human nature issue. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, right now I'm feeling like I need to be the, like the winner of this podcast. Like I better, <laughs> you know, well, surprise, surprise. I've you been in competition like, with you the, the whole time. time. <laughs> Playing and the long game. There's a third. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, right. Another thing that we uh, identified to discuss was maintaining relevance. Oh, okay. As a, as a challenge that is faced by design or, or is a design challenge on the whole mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily specific to a particular project or right. marketability or however you want to frame it. But I, I feel like Chris, you might have more to say about this because you've worked in a more traditional, like you were, your career is, has the word design in it. Right. Um, <laughs> I, and yet I still don't feel relevant. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's You're the, in the right place. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I think I mean it is it is a a struggle of every designer, I think. I mean as as a designer to be relevant yeah. is um is one kind of struggle obviously, but then for for design to have relevance in the world is another kind of struggle. Mm-hmm. Um I mean just just speaking as as a designer, like that's always something that uh I think I'm always trying to uh, I don't want to say struggle with, but always trying to achieve is like relevance in my field and mm-hmm. um, trying to do work that uh, that is beneficial to society and, you know, is um, unique. You know, we, we, uniqueness was another thing we were going to talk about, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to do work that is special and, and relevant in the world. I think that's, that's always a struggle and something that I'm always trying to work on and, um, every project I do, it's like, how is this project going to be relevant to the industry and to my clients? And um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a when I think of relevance, tricky... I kind of think of like a chicken in the egg scenario where it's like, is it relevant because in practice it actually solves a problem or addresses a concern that is to be solved by design? Or is design relevant because you have the foresight to under to spot a problem and design a solution to it? Um, like, at what point do you determine whether or not your design is relevant? I guess is where I'm leading with that. Like, mm-hmm. when can you? I or is it the type of thing where it's an ongoing conversation? Like, is this still relevant? Does this still solve the problem? Should we think about redesigning this thing? Some things never get redesigned. Right. Some things are constantly undergoing like, oh, we got to tweak this little thing and now we got to do this. And oh, the like things are moving in this direction. So now we have to make this more applicable to this thing that's come up and not this other thing over here. Right. Like I think it mm-hmm. probably has a lot to do with like the problem that you're designing for, essentially. Mm-hmm. I I think, yeah, yeah I, like both of you. I mean, like, like park benches are still relevant. And I would argue their design probably hasn't changed that much over time. I mean, there's probably lots of variations, but the deal sure. is like you put put a place to sit that is resilient mm. to weather and can seat multiple people. Like that's, I, I, you know. It's funny. Right. The biggest design change in park benches I can think of is the ones to prevent people from sleeping on them. Oh, God. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. up until recently, park benches have just, it's a bench. It's It's right. like a hard couch right and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they've become these sectioned off seats with you know armrests because that prevents people from sleeping on them right. um you know you also look at like the benches in airports and things where it was like they used to be kind of just rows of benches and then they became places where people couldn't lay down and you know arguably it's for slightly different c- scenarios like airports typically their problem is they don't want people laying down because it's a security issue of them i 
I don't know. I mean, I don't also, know what the thinking is. Also, it's probably a huge pain in the ass if people keep falling asleep and missing flights, too. Yeah. I mean, sure. just from a yeah. logistical <laughs> right, standpoint. Right, logistic point like, of view, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, airports are usually have paying customers where it's like if you're in an airport, you're usually at least funded enough that you are you have some destination in mind. You can't get into that area without... Without a ticket without and a valid a boarding pass. Right, right. right. But, you have to um, intend to go somewhere. Or but yeah. public benches, on like the other hand, are right. like a huge, you know, that's just basically saying, fuck you, homeless. Like, you can't sleep on this park bench. Yeah. you got to sleep on the ground, which is I like, anyway, that's right. a whole that's other a whole discussion. <laughs> I just wanted to kind of get into, um, I really what I wanted to say is listening to both of you talk about um, this particular topic of like staying relevant. When I first thought of it, I was kind of locked into the idea of like, an existing product and then how do you design with the idea that it, it continues to be relevant? Mm-hmm. Um, in some spaces that's true in software development. That's not always true. If I'm designing specific, like a lot of the software I write for is um, internal corporate software. So they're using it inside of their corporation. Um, relevance is, is more just after listening to both what you said, I thought again, I was like, well, how do I, my software doesn't need to stay relevant. It just is relevant until it's no longer relevant. That's fine. It's not my, like, it's not my business to tell them how to do their internal processes. Mm -hmm. But, um, but then it occurred to me that like Meg, you were saying, and actually Chris, what you had mentioned too, is that, is this even relevant to begin with? Yeah. That's the real question is like, can I create this in a relevant way? Does it meet the design requirements? Is like, does it have enough specificity that we can tell whether it's relevant to begin with? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, I, you right. know, where am I going with this? Is this going to happen or not? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, am I going to write this software and it's going to show up and like no one's going to use it because it's not actually relevant to the problem? The person who yeah. commissioned it is not actually in touch with what's actually needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those are all real issues. I also think it's a problem if your primary concern becomes relevance and your secondary concern becomes designing the thing that's going to make you relevant. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot to unpack right there. (laughs) 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 It's a real loaded statement. Um, Yeah. I, man. um, (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you tell me more about that? Uh, Now I don't feel like I want to. No, I mean, that's a really good point is, um, you know, if you're, you know, as it like, come on, people, you all know what I'm talking about, right? I don't need <laughs> yeah. to say anything. Um, if you're designing something to be relevant, like if you're, <laughs> so you go like, I'm just kind of like breaking this down. You're coming, you're, you're kind of, you're like, it, <laughs> This is the philosophy major we're talking to. Yes. Well, yeah. Thanks, Meg. Sorry. We'll see if you invite you back on your own podcast after that one. Um, look, I, here's my thinking on this. Like you're, you're, you're designing something. Um, like I'll just draw from my own experience. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm designing some glorified accounting software and, um, in my situation, there's some really specific requirements that need to be met. Mm-hmm. And so relevance is just, does this do those things? Um, if I were designing, so now go to like some of my more commercial endeavors where, or like sort of public facing products where I'm say designing like a video game, mm-hmm. then am I designing it to meet relevance that I've already identified or am I designing it with the idea of I'm creating relevance? 
Is that what you're asking? <sighs> I think that's uh, I think that's the question. Yeah. Are you designing because something to make it relevant or are you designing something because that will become relevant as a condition of its being a good design? Like right. is its relevance dependent on its So, yeah, goodness. Successfulness so when I like I, I, as an as an independent developer, yeah. and someone who's trying to create a video game that um, people might enjoy, I can't. I I have no way of being competitive in the relevance of the normal video game cycles. Right? I don't have the ability to. Um, well, whether I do or not, I've I've chosen to move in the direction of I'm designing something that will become relevant. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's it will inevitably me. become relevant because yeah because it frees me from the problem of attempting to catch up to an existing game market. I can't. It's not. I've decided that I'm not going to try and and create a hyper realistic first person shooter multiplayer online. You know, ex, like you know, mm-hmm. a plus or a type, what do they call them? Triple a titles or whatever the, you know, the, the, the high end games of the, you know, the big companies out there. I'm not, I I've decided that I, I'm not going to try attempt to be competitive and relevant with them. Yeah. What I'm going to attempt to do is follow the path that I've laid out for myself in the design of this game by making it, as good as it can be in the path that I've chosen and that that relevance will be emergent from that. It will right. be relevant within the context of itself. It's, you know, Miss Pac-Man is still relevant. People love that game. Sure. Now, but it, it right. became relevant. It, it emerged as, a, as relevant over time. Right. Because right. it was enduring for reasons that may not have been, Right. serious factors in the design. I mean, games back then were seriously limited and it's not as though you can compare the relevance of Ms. Pac-Man to the relevance of like the original Gran Turismo where everybody was like, look at how amazing these cars look. Like mm-hmm. you're not base, you're not judging them, their relevance on the same metrics. Right. And so like, I think Ms. Pac-Man became relevant over time. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, the relevance emerges out of the design Mm-hmm. And it's in its enduring appeal. Um, however, the you know some of the other things are relevant only for their place in time and not in an enduring way because they were milestones or benchmarkers or right. like prime examples of a particular thing in a particular place in a particular time. Mm-hmm. Like um, the the thing that makes Ms. Pac-Man so great is that it's so identifiable and mm-hmm. so like iconic. Uh-huh. Whereas there have been plenty of video games that were like hugely uh, important at the time or like got a lot of acclaim or whatever that now are no longer relevant because something better has come along or things by which Mm -hmm. we judge whether it's relevant. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, I like Miss Pac-Man as an example uh, is sort of a peak of its niche, right? mm -hmm. Like you're not going to to use your example of Gran Turismo, there's been more and more iterations of it that are more and more relevant. Arguably you could say, well, why right. play the original when you can, can play, play the, the best better version, version, the better version. Yeah. Of it? Um, there's probably some people might argue that there's like better versions of Miss Pac-Man, but I might also make the argument that those are just kind of 
iterations of the same thing as yeah. opposed to like, Revel- I mean, Re- as is Gran Turismo in a, in a sense, but it's so much more of an iteration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's so much, I, anyway. Does I, that make them less relevant? I guess that's a question. I uh, think also, I mean, how do we define relevance? I, yeah. I think well, a little bit when I, yeah. I mean, it's relative. It is mm-hmm. relative. Relevance even just bringing relative. up, even uh, just bringing up Miss Pac-Man, I, I immediately think, well, there's cultural relevance, right? Right. It's iconic to a huge generation of people, right? Yep. Um, and and generations after them. I mean, I imagine most people are familiar with the game in some capacity. I that or Pac-Man, you would have to think so. Yeah. I mean, one of the yeah. two of them. Yeah, the Pac-Man franchise. It's and you can't. I I don't know. Um. Anyway, it's, it's almost like you 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 in some cases you can't design for relevance because you're not really sure not with certainty not with certainty yeah yeah i mean you you could say yeah maybe this is relevant because it answers a question of the time but Mm -hmm. um how relevant that's going to become in years past you there's there's no way to know yeah sometimes you don't know what's going to change culturally or uh whatever so i um I know it's an interesting question, and how yeah. how can you design for relevance when it is so relative? Yeah, um, I don't know. Well, uh, you know that kind of just loops right back around to specificity, <laughs> right? If you're real specific about what's relevant, then you can certainly that's a certainly achievable goal, and you can certainly reach that you know reach that target. So um, um, I was gonna um, say we're we're kind of getting right around an hour. So I don't know if you guys, maybe we like, should put a pin in it and then pick up in another episode. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we've got, a, there's like a, a part whole, one, part two. That sounds good. Cause yeah, there's cause a whole a second set of, we've got, um, we've got the discussion of adapting to technology, which I think follows immediately what we were just saying. Okay. Um, yep. but we can certainly put that in part two if we just want to, that could be a big discussion. Yeah. 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 That's a big one. And then, um, a couple of other things too. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we take a little break? Um, we'll say goodbye for now and people can listen to this episode and they can get to the end of it and be super frustrated and then listen to the second one. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Just real cliffhanger here, like real high drama. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Did, was there, I didn't mean to like cut people off. Like Your mother's someone. dying words were. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, oh, on that note, before we, before we get to your mother's dying words. Yes. Let's just close out with some tips for um, living well. Uh, here, let me, um, you guys talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. And so, I do will. You know, do you know about the tips for living well and helping? Uh, no. Well, the first one I did, we, there was a, uh, you asked me, uh, what is my tip for, for living, living well? well. Yeah. yeah. And it was be nice to people. Yeah. I still live by one. that one. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. That's a very good one. <laughs> Uh, I have a whole list of them. Um, also drink scotch, drink scotch. That's a good good one. I don't drink scotch because it (laughs) makes me feel icky. Well, maybe you would be living better in hell if you were drinking scotch. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like your, your interpretation of feeling icky may be wrong. I'm just going to maybe wrong. You're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. Uh, you just need to learn to enjoy it. Yes, exactly. Um, Like the rest of us. Right. Just enjoy it. Nobody enjoys scotch, Meg. <laughs> it's just something you spend a lot of money on to look cool. Yes. Not even the Scots enjoy scotch. Right. <laughs> well, it's that. so here's one that I can uh, put with that. Then uh, become adept at sitting with your discomfort. Okay. So your tip for living well in hell yeah, is... Yeah, just 
get comfortable being uncomfortable. All right. I yeah. I there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. been a lot of times in my life where that has been whether I believed in that as a good idea or not, I was forced to do that because mm-hmm. you oftentimes you just don't have a choice. You're going right. to be uncomfortable and that's that's where you're at. <laughs> this and and knowing when you should just sit with your discomfort and knowing when people are trying to uh, exploit your ability to sit with your discomfort as opposed to doing something to make the situation better. Like the situation has is not the problem. Your ability to deal with it is the problem. It's like a subtle form of gaslighting. <laughs> and so watch out for that. But if there's a situation where you're just genuinely stuck, just developing the skill of sitting with that discomfort and not flipping out or needing something or like whatever it's, that has served me very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. 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 I agree. Great. Okay. All right. Okay.